Hello and welcome back to the podcast of The Legacy of John Williams. This is a new episode of The Legacy Conversations, a series of in-depth talks about the legacy of John Williams. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and my guest today is the esteemed American conductor, John Mauceri. John Mauceri certainly needs no introduction to any serious classical and film music admirer. During his distinguished and extraordinarily varied career, he conducted the world's greatest opera companies and symphony orchestras, but also worked on the musical stages of Broadway and Hollywood. Mauceri is the founding director of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra in Los Angeles, which was created for him in 1991 by the Los Angeles Philharmonic Association. He conducted over 300 concerts at the Hollywood Bowl, often presenting music by Hollywood composers. Cherry devoted also writings and classes in the most prestigious halls of academia. He recently published a book titled Maestros and Their Music, The Art and Alchemy of Conducting, an unprecedented, informative, entertaining exploration of his profession, rich with anecdotes from decades of working alongside the greatest names of the music world, including his mentors Leopold Stokowski and Leonard Bernstein. John Mauceri is one of the world's leading ambassadors for film music in the concert hall. He devoted a lot of time studying, reconstructing and conducting the classic scores from Hollywood's golden age, with a particular attention to the refugee European composers who settled in Hollywood in the 1930s. conversation, Maestro Mauceri talks about the history and the aesthetic of Hollywood movie music of the Golden Age era, and how it all ties to the figure of John Williams and the role of the composer in the history of Hollywood music. Maestro Mauceri, thank you. Thank you very much for, for accepting to do this. Lovely to talk to you. To start, I'd like to ask you about your history and relationship with movie music. So, uh, how and when your interest for this repertoire started and how it evolved through the years to finally become a true passion? Well, uh, Maurizio, um, it, it really uh, spoke to me as a child um, because I was lucky enough to be a teenager when the big epic movies 
uh, many of which were filmed at Cinecittà, uh, were being released. Mm. So this is uh, Cleopatra, this is uh, The Robe, uh, The King of Kings, these great epic movies that had great the, uh, El Cid. So these were scores by Nicholas Roja, Alfred Newman, and uh, North, so Alec North for Cleopatra. And so as a teenager, I, I occasionally bought albums. But as a classically trained conductor and as a composer, the, this music was separate somehow. We were taught it was separate if we were taught anything at all. So it really wasn't until... Uh, well, maybe two things happened. I was listening to the radio, and there was a cello concerto, and it was really wonderful, and I knew it was German or Austrian, and it, it sounded like kind of Richard Strauss, but mm. didn't know, and I know that Strauss didn't write a cello concerto. It turned out to be cello concerto of uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold to the film Deception, which starred Betty Davis. at this because not knowing uh, where the music had come from I just judged it as classical music the other thing that happened was in 1991 and that was the year that the Decca record company uh, asked me to be one of two conductors on a series called Entartete Musik which is German mm. for generate music and this was the the goal of the series was to record music that had been banned by Hitler. And at the same year, 1991, uh, the Los Angeles Philharmonic created a new orchestra for me, and it was the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra to play at the Hollywood Bowl. Yes. And I said, let's play music written in Los Angeles. At that time, I didn't quite know what that would mean, but it did mean that I had to learn the composers, I mean, really learned the composers who wrote for Hollywood or, or lived in Hollywood, because that also included Schoenberg and Stravinsky. Right. And, and, uh, and to my great surprise, the names of the composers I was studying in Hollywood had the same names on the list of degenerate composers that Hitler's people put together. And no one had ever taught that history. It was as if it were just sitting there and no one spoke of it. So it meant a very, what we say in English, steep learning curve. Mm. Learn, you know, who was Roja, who was Tiomkin, yeah. who Branislav Kapper, who was, and, and, and also who was Schulhoff, 
and Korngold, who became, a, you know, the double world because I was recording Das Wunder der Heliana in Berlin, and yeah. I was restoring the adventures of Robin Hood in Los Angeles, and it was the same composer, and I got to meet the family. See, this is the other thing. First of all, there were no biographies of these composers, none. Uh, and as of this conversation, there's one for Eric Korngold, yeah. but not Steiner, none for Waxman or Waxman, none for the others. So yeah. how to learn about them? So I reached out to the families, and one of these composers was still alive, Nicholas Roja. Mm. And I suppose my history of being a teacher at Yale University, and also uh, if you're a conductor, you're always a student. You know, you're always learning. So. Yeah. You pursue whatever you have to do. So I, I learned from Roja, who was 85 years old at the time, and from Waxman's son, and from Schoenberg's son, and from Korngold's son um, and daughter-in-law. I, I heard the stories. I learned the history. So for 16 years at the Hollywood Bowl, from 1991 until 2000 six or seven, mm. I, I was restoring this music. And at that time, you know, no one was doing this. I mean, really, it was very rare for any of this music to be played in concert. Mm. Not even John Williams was doing it. John was conducting his own music with the Boston Pops and the Boston Pops Library, but he was not conducting Korngold and he was not conducting Waxman. I began also conducting Korngold's in Europe. So uh, in 1997, uh, I conducted a concert in Vienna, which was the first time there was a Korngold concert in Vienna in, well, since Korngold. Yeah. I mean, and, and I stood in front of the Norddeutsche Rundfunk uh, at, to conduct an all Korngold program. And there was not a single member of the orchestra who'd ever heard his name. of where the history of music was a mere 25 years ago. Yeah. So the work would have been foolish if it were not for one fact, which was that the music was really good. And as a result, I also got to know other, the next generation of film composers who were American born. All these others I talked about were born and trained in Europe but all had become American citizens during World War II. Yeah. Only Steiner had come after World War I uh, out of Austria. He was in London at the time of the beginning of World War I, and he went to London and then went out to, went to New York and yes. then went out to play in the 
first days of synchronized sound. But all the others were trained either in Leipzig or in Dresden or in St. Petersburg yeah. or in Warsaw or Vienna. Now, 10 years later, we had the American-born composers like Jerry uh, Goldsmith and uh, Elmer Bernstein yeah. and Herman. Now, Bernard Herman was already dead, but I did know Jerry and Elmer. And, uh, and also Alex North was dead, but I knew his widow. And mm -hmm. I started to learn this continued history of these amazing composers. And that takes us, really, we, we leap over a few decades. I made a lot of speeches. I wrote articles. I taught a course at Yale about it. I, um, I did a radio series in America mm -hmm. just to people the story of these composers. So that's the long that's the long story. And of course, during that time, I met John Williams. Yeah. Before going into John Williams, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about the history and the static of Hollywood film music of the Golden Age era. So, because I think it's important to link it to what John did afterwards since the 1970s. So as you wrote in many articles and lectures and your programs, uh, these composers fleeing from Europe in the 1930s and establishing in the United States, especially in Los Angeles. It's there where we can find their huge legacy now. Uh, there is this great quote from and the late Andrew Previn, who said, it wasn't Cornwall that sounded like Hollywood, but Hollywood that sounded like Cornwall in the end. So do you think all these wonderful composers and musicians were actually aware that they were building something that would have continued to for many years, or were they just applying what they knew to a completely new art form? I think there are two aspects of the answer. The second part is, yes, they just went to work. They went to work the way Verdi went to work or Bach went to work. They weren't thinking, now I'm going to do something really brand new, because every composer is doing something brand new, but also continuing his own voice. So, you know, Mozart didn't say, now I'm going to write the music uh, that's brand new. It was, of course, brand new. In fact, all music was brand new. The idea of playing older music you know, only starts happening in the 19th century. So there's that. They went to work, as I said, very much like Bach. I mean, they many of them were uh, on a salary. Some of them, after a while, then became individuals who were hired by the picture. The other part of it is that we tend to think of avant-garde music as a certain kind of music, atonal, spectral, all the words we use. Yeah. But really, the cutting edge of technology was... The movies was the cinema so from a point of view even though they were writing the same music they were writing in Europe and that everyone was writing in music everyone was writing it, it was not that it was a new style it yeah. was just music the difference though Maurizio was that now you could specifically synchronize your music to the drama which is exactly what Wagner had intended in his operas even Mozart, and you know, when the commendatore is, is killed by Don Giovanni, yeah. there's a specific chord that happens when the, the sword is thrust into the commendatore. The same thing is true in ballet. It's always been synchronized. The difference was you could now synchronize to the drama and you would conduct it yourself. So in almost every case, the composer was the conductor. Therefore, the performance the piece of music and its function were sealed forever. And every year, the technology got better.
could change our whole way of looking at this by turning it around and saying these were the true avant-garde composers of their time, as opposed to the experimentalists, mm. who fundamentally were doing what Marinetti was saying in 1909, and the Manifesto del Futurismo was basically the same manifesto that exists a hundred years later. Yes. And it's a very old idea, it's a very nostalgic idea of Futurismo, whereas actually that future never happened, right? Yes. <laughs> so I think they just went to work and they wrote as well as they could. Now, in my list of composers, I did leave out a number of them, but the most significant one for the Italian people who are listening to this story, I mean, there are a number of Italians, of course, who, who wrote for the cinema, but there's one, Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco, yes. who may be the most significant of them all. I have no idea whether uh, musicians in Italy ever study Castelnuovo Tedesco uh, or just guitar players know his music. But mostly, I got... yes, mostly, mostly guitar players. But yeah, he's I... being rediscovered right now, actually. Yeah, good. And the story is a really important story because his story is about as tragic as any story. And not only tragic, but then triumphant. Because when Mussolini created the racial laws and he one day found out he was no longer an Italian and that his son could no longer go to school. He had to leave for America and came to Los Angeles. And I think Heifetz helped and he worked at MGM. Uh, and then he left MGM and he became a teacher. And I suppose he was wealthy enough. Somehow he managed to maintain his family wealth, which after all, went many, many centuries back. You know, his family was from Spain. Mm. And in 1493, Isabella threw out all the Jews and the Muslims so that the family moved to, to Florence. Yeah. That meant that Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco wrote his music uh, in America, but taught people. And his students included Andre Previn, included uh, John Williams, included Henry Mancini, included um, Nelson Riddle. You go through this list of, yeah. of who were taught by Mario, and when you talk to John, and I talked to Andre about him, they just loved him. He was such a wonderful teacher, and importantly, he never took a penny. I said to Andre, how did it work? He said, well, you'd bring your music to Mario, and he would correct it and give you suggestions. And then his wife would come out with some uh, fig tea, wine, and uh, I said, did you pay him? He said, oh, no, he never accepted a penny. And wonderful music, by the way. So, I mean, he's not the only one. I mean, there's a whole other story here for another conversation about fascism and about Italy after World War II and what it did to itself. It was as bad as what Germany did to itself. It was bad enough what Italy did to itself during the war and Germany and Austria and a lot of countries. It's as much, it's as bad after, but that's another story for another time. Yeah, absolutely. We could talk uh, uh, definitely another time about all this topic, which is fascinating. Speaking of John Williams and the impact his music made, since at least 1975-77, do you think he kind of brings together these two different worlds of, on one side, the great European tradition? We could say he was a student of that era of emigre composers, but also the great American school of writing, because I can definitely hear traces of Aaron Copland and Samuel Barber in his music, and he's also a jazz man. So what makes John's music so much his own while also being a direct continuation of all this tradition that we just talked about? 
I think every composer who's a, a, a great composer, you could say, did exactly and does exactly what John does. Because if you look at Franz Liszt or Wagner, or you look at Georges Pizet, or you look at uh, Ravel or Verdi, uh, you know, in Verdi's time, he was always being accused of stealing from Mercadante, uh, you know, as if anybody could even care about Mercadante. And maybe <laughs> Mercadante was a great composer, I don't know. So I don't want to say that he was a bad composer. But the bottom line is that if you read the critics about Verdi, they would say that his music was, the melodies were unnatural and that he was stealing from himself and from Mercadante. For Bach, they said he stole uh, from Buxtehude. And, you know, it's always that. It, it, it's because when you hear music for the first time, you can't hear it as itself. You hear it in terms of other music you know, until you get used to it, and then you hear it for itself. I remember when I heard La Forza del Destino for the first time, I only knew Aida. So I heard Forza in terms of Aida. Now I don't. If you separate La Traviata from Rigoletto, even if they're being written almost at the same time. Mm -hmm. But when you first hear them, you hear the elements. Now, John has the ability to mimic, to imitate, as well as to find his own voice in that mimicry. You know, but that's not unusual. Remember, in the 20th century, this is the first century where every kind of music is accessible to a composer. Mm. A composer can, because of recordings and broadcasts, and then later the internet, composers could, for the first time, access music from the Renaissance, from South America, from West Africa, from the latest premiere in New York when they're in Los Angeles, or what's being written in China. It becomes much more fertile than it was in centuries past. But in centuries past, it still was operative. It just was that the field of, of inspiration was more limited. So, yeah. so John, when he starts with Jaws, that little motive, the uh, 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 you just have to go to Franz Waxman and you listen to Two things. One, his first major score, The Bride of Frankenstein, 1935. When we see the monster, the music goes boom, 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 <laughs> boom, boom, right? And then when Waxman writes um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, this is the 1940s, when the murder happens, the music is going uh, 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 and which is almost a direct prediction yeah. of Joe. The difference is that Waxman changes the size of the interval. So it is not just da 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 but da 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 It's a triplet, so it's one, two, three, two, two, three, one, and two, and. But clearly, John knew his Waxman, and uh, one of the great influences on John and everyone was a series of recordings that were made in the early 1970s on RCA, and it was music produced, ironically, by 
Korngold's younger son, George, yes. uh, conducted by Charles Gerhardt. And it started with music from his father, from Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Yeah. This was the Seahawk. <laughs> of the greatest musicians and great engineering for the first time people were hearing this classic music in stereo with a great orchestra and a great performances we got to hear corn gold that's where i heard that that cello concerto it came from that series of recordings waxman's recording was called sunset boulevard and you heard for the first time that music and tiamkin etc roja herman too within that series now so john gets to hear that and when George Lucas want to have a score to this projected space opera, which would be called Star Wars, they knew something that most people are unaware of. You have to be a certain age, and because I'm the same age as Lucas and Spielberg, more or less. When we were little boys, when we watched television, they would show the Flash Gordon serials from the 1930s that Universal released. There were three Flash Gordon serials in the 30s with starring Buster Crabbe. They were 13 episode stories. Uh, they were space operas. Now, uh, George Lucas wanted to do a remake of Flash Gordon, and he did not have the rights. The rights were held by Dino De Laurentiis. Mm -hmm. And that made him write, I mean, Lucas wrote Star Wars. He came up with a new version of telling that same story with different evil characters, but still it was more or less like an opera, and it was like an opera that took place during World War II. And remember, Star Wars takes place in the past. Most people forget that. They think <laughs> it's a, the future, but it took place a long time ago. Now, for the music that Lucas wanted, he wanted music in the style of the Flash Gordon serials from 1933 and 35. Who wrote the music to those serials? Franz Baxman. <laughs> Gordon serials, you realize how much Star Wars is dependent on that aesthetic. And so John Williams, who had just written Jaws, would absolutely understand how to write in the style of Waxman and Korngold. Now, that is where really where everything shifts with John Williams. In a way, when I first heard Star Wars in 1977, 
It was, I remember exactly when it was. It was an afternoon. I was rehearsing at the Metropolitan Opera. I was rehearsing Beethoven's Fidelio, and I had an afternoon free of rehearsals. So on my own, I went to see this new movie, a science fiction movie, right? I had no idea. I just heard it might be good. And so I was all alone in a packed theater. And so always in America, people leave a seat, you know, between strangers, right? Yeah. So I have, you know, I was by myself. So I wasn't looking for two seats. I was looking for one. And so it started with the Fox fanfare and the Dolby and all that stuff. And then when the music came in and we saw, we saw this scroll that was telling the story up to this point, we all screamed because it was a reference to the Flash Gordon serial. of the theme from King's Row of, of Corn Gold. I didn't know that at the time. But all the way through the score, I knew that, oh, well, oh, that's the opening of the second half, uh, second part of the Rite of Spring. Oh, that's the love of the oranges of Prokofiev. And I knew that the temporary score that John was emulating was music by Prokofiev, Stravinsky, Waxman, and the Corn Gold. At that time, I only kind of knew their music, but I certainly knew Flash Gordon. John, because he is a genius, is that as the years have gone on, and if you listen to his scores to the Star Wars epics, it becomes less and less referential to the past and more and more the unique voice of John Williams, right? He takes that as the place where he jumps, you know, like when you jump into a swimming pool. The place for the leap, the auftakt, the upbeat, the anacrusis is Waxman and Korngold and, and Stravinsky from 1913 in that period. And then already by the Empire Strikes Back and the others, he becomes more and more John. Because the recording was released 
Uh, and when it was released, amazingly enough, the names of the orchestra players in the London Symphony mm -hmm. were listed on the back cover of the recording so that young people could see that this was really an orchestra playing, right? It was, <laughs> it was real people playing the French horn and there was a harp player. So that really changed everything. It changed everything for sealing the history from 1977 back to 1933 and those composers who were back to the time of Wagner and Strauss and, and continued therefore to today. So in that sense, this was the great moment, the bridge. Absolutely. It's interesting how it came almost full circle because if we think that John uh, started working as a pianist in studio orchestra in Hollywood and playing for people like Alfred Newman and Bernard Herrmann and Alex North and all the others and then stepping up and doing orchestration work for all these people. And, you know, he had already uh, absorbed all that lexicon, all that stylings, all that history, actually, that, yeah. of course, was <laughs> built upon the great music of the European tradition. That's what it is. And the irony is that the link in the 30s was because of Hitler. Everybody knew, I mean, there were, there were film studios in France, in Germany, uh, in London, and then only later in the 30s, Mussolini built the Cinecittà. Yes. Wanted, but also in the Soviet Union, and of course in Hollywood, but also on Long Island in America. And the emigration of these composers would not have necessarily happened. It would have been much less dramatic, much less overt, if it had not been for Hitler's racial policies, and then of course Mussolini. So their attack on their own cultural class yeah. and and the fact that most of them got out I mean the great the geniuses got out and I'm not here to say that other geniuses didn't die in the camps because course, I have yes. no I have no idea but we do know that really great great composers did escape and did write music and and if you look then at Europe you go and what replaced these people the answer is no one. So, you know, yes, when Mario Casalnovo Tedesco left Florence, what did Italy get? It got one less Jewish family. And what did Los Angeles and America get? Well, the teacher of John Williams, Jerry Kovsmikkel, <laughs> that's a pretty good bargain, right? You know, and again, so as a result, there is no living Mahler-Strauss tradition in Vienna. Mm. It, it's in Los Angeles, and and there is no Mario, there's no Castelnuovo Tedesco, or you know, look at Nino Rota, he's mm -hmm. a really good example. But then the lesser known, like Vittorio Giannini, who taught at Juilliard and wrote music for the NBC Opera. Look at uh, these people. I mean, they continued uh, their the great traditions in spite of their countries. Now today, ironically, with few exceptions, when a composer comes out of Germany or France they still go to, to Hollywood. Only Ennio Morricone, you know, lives in Italy and, you know, and stays there. But Alessandro Desplat, or you look at Ramin Jawadi from Germany, you look at these guys and they're, you know, they're writing music. Where are they, you know, Hans Zimmer, where is he living? You know, <laughs> that's the, the sad truth. You know, we're now 75 years after World War II ended. So, you know, it's really 80 years of this. And so the, 
the children and the children of the children are still in America and the new ones come to America to study and continue the tradition. You see, Maurizio, the, the way composition is taught, very much like a medieval guilds, it's the same thing with conducting. You have the sorcerer and the apprentice. You really <laughs> want to get, you have to learn from the maestro, from the master. Yeah. And uh, in my life, I was fortunate because I had Giulini, I yeah. had Stokowski and Bernstein. I was close to them and watching them work. I was near the fire. I watched it. It was in front of me, right? I had lunch with the fire. And so that becomes something that inspires you. For John Williams, yes, of course he was there while Benny Herman was having a fit or while uh, Al Newman was trying to figure out how to fix something. And he was there, part of it, playing the celesta or the piano. But then he comes to the point where he stands up and he has the, the magic hat. And that's where he is now. And he's influenced, well, thousands of composers, and he's inspired millions of people with his music. Yeah, that's exactly one of the, the goals that I'm trying to, to, to collect for, for this project of mine. film music in a live setting you were certainly one of the pioneers nowadays it's almost becoming ubiquitous you know you see film concerts pretty much everywhere around the world so what is the, the main job of the conductor when he or she decided to taking out the music out of the film and put it in into a concert stage what what is the the main job that the conductor has to do well uh, this is really um complicated so not well I mean because really the live to picture idea uh, and yes to some extent you can blame me I am <laughs> I didn't meant that actually <laughs> oh, I am culpable I am culpable uh, because when we started playing film music at the Hollywood Bowl most of the time it was with not with any kind of screen it was just to play the music and you couldn't just play the music, you had to restore it, you had to find it. It, it yeah. wasn't, mostly wasn't published. And if it was published, it was published just with a theme, a tune. You know, it would be like knowing Mozart from da-da-da, 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 that, that's how you know Mozart, but you yeah. don't know that, right? You know da-da-da-da, but you don't know the rest of the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven. So in order to create concert performing versions, I, it was my job to take the original materials and stitch them together in some way to make them 
performing so that there's a way to perform it in public. So sometimes a cue, as you know, can be quite short. Sometimes it's seven minutes long. Sometimes it's two minutes long. But you can't just play a series of cues that comes from a movie. You have to make it make some kind of dramatic sense. Now, sometimes composers from that time made concert performances, made concert editions. But for the most part, they didn't. They were too busy. The good news is that because they were all trained to be serious composers, by simply gluing them together with an idea as a composer, without changing a note, you could actually make something that was as logical as a tone poem by Richard Strauss or by Franz Liszt or by Debussy. You could actually turn that into a piece of music. So that's what I was doing. Now, when we started showing images on a screen, we only did excerpts. We never did complete movies. Um, and, but during that time, we were developing the techniques whereby a conductor could, in fact, synchronize the music live to the picture. This, this really was a problem that was aided by digital, uh, digital projection. Yeah. Because with digital information, you can add to that digital information some of the old ways of synchronizing, the punches, the streamers, the clicks, clicks which were developed by Newman, the streamers which, which really came out of Warner Brothers mostly. And so we were doing that, but we were never doing whole pictures. The conductors who do whole pictures, and I rarely do that because I find it to be not particularly interesting and to be extremely stressful because you're forced to find some kind of flexibility in achieving precision from another conductor from another time. Yes. You're having to imitate certain places that you have to be at. This, to me, is the point at which I say, okay, let the young people try this or let them do it because it's not all that interesting to me. So there's that world. Now, I say that even though I have done two complete pictures for Danny Elfman, and I do that for him. And I suppose I might do another someday if it were a great score. But when you play music in a concert and you just play it as music, that's what interests me. So for seven years, I went to the Gavant House in, in Leipzig mm. and I put Korngold and Waxman and John Williams in programs along with Wagner and Strauss. These concerts had no screens. They were concerts that had a thematic idea. Yes. This was the way I brought great film music to Leipzig in the years just after the Berlin Wall fell. So the audience had never seen these movies. So when we did Psycho, the narrative for string orchestra that Bernard Herrmann wrote and I restored, it had never been played. He wrote it in 1969, Maurizio. Yeah. He recorded it but never performed it. And I managed to get the manuscripts from his widow and compare it to the recording. And we gave its world concert premiere in the 1990s. I mean, that's how long it took.
So playing that, for example, with the Gewandhaus Orchestra, the audience was not imagining Hitchcock's movie. They'd never seen it. They were just listening to it as music. So yeah. um, that, for me, is the most important goal, not the, not the live to picture, which I think is fine. Also, the other part is that, for the most part, uh, orchestras play this music for commercial reasons, not for artistic reasons. They do it on a minimum amount of rehearsal. You know, when I, I just did a Mahler Symphony Number no. 5 in Prague, and I was given five orchestra rehearsals. Mm. However, when I do The Nightmare Before Christmas, I get two. Mm. So you can understand, and Nightmare Before Christmas is as difficult and as complicated. Yes. But no one is going to pay for more than two rehearsals to prepare it. There's still a snobbery against this music that it's not real music and we don't treat it with the same respect that we treat classical music. That's what I try to achieve, you know, an awareness that the quality of performance is as important as any music. Yes, I'm thinking also about your uh, recordings that you did uh, in the early 90s with the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra that you put together those wonderful CDs where you you started with the fanfare for the Hollywood Bowl by Schoenberg, then you went into Gone with the Wind, and then back to the Firebird, and then the Wizard of Oz, and, and you created a sort of logical narrative to see how uh, the influence was really back and forth. Uh, also, the piece from Franz Waxman, The Place in the Sound, the beautiful suite where you had that fugato section that sounds like a Shostakovich before Shostakovich, <laughs> Symphony <That's> 11. <laughs> Franz Waxman played him some of that music from A Place in the Sun, and, and Shostakovich looked shocked. And then Waxman said, yes, but I wrote it first. And, um, and that's really kind of a wonderful, wonderful story, because it was alternating current. It was give and take. It was listening and responding. And to argue who came first is less important. You know, for a long time, people used to say, well, Franz Liszt composed the famous Tristan chord. Mm. And I well, find, yes, but Wagner wrote Tristan, so what's the point, you know? Uh, I, I, I don't invent the wheel every morning, even though I might ride my bicycle. Um, it, it's what you do with these things. And again, that brings us back to your earlier question about John Williams. Yes, he, he collected a lot of things 
Uh, he knew a lot of things. He understood the function of Western music, and he used it. And you're absolutely right about his jazz background, because this is really important. Now, he's not the first one, of course, because Waxman was a jazz musician in Berlin, and uh, Alec North loved playing jazz, and of course, so did Andre Previn. So when you listen to Waxman's music, uh, Crime in the Streets or Rear Window, you're hearing jazz, you know, really quite extraordinarily beautiful. And it, it, it doesn't, I mean, it isn't surprising, therefore, that Franz Waxman, yes. who was Franz Waxman, uh, <laughs> who played in Weintraub Syncopators in Berlin, is the man who writes Rear Window. I mean, he writes music to represent also the, the, the sophisticated uh, movie star music for Grace Kelly, for Elizabeth Taylor, for Catherine Hepburn. You know, whether that's, um, you just go through the list of what, what he was writing, A Place in the Sun, of course, is Elizabeth Taylor, and uh, A Philadelphia Story is Catherine Hepburn, and Grace Kelly in, in Rear Window. Catch Me If You Can, and he can, and then he can write kind of spectral music for uh, artificial intelligence, AI. Oh, great, the, great score, great score. I, I think it. the, the greatest of the middle period. Yes, absolutely. And yet when, when minimalism comes along, he knows how to use that. You think you might be in John Adams or, in, or Philip Glass, and there's John, you know, right up there doing that as well as anybody. Austrian uplift of a Richard Strauss, 
you have it in, in Close Encounters. And you, at the end, you have two kinds of music. So you have Schoenberg and Korngold in the same score, with two Austrians who come to uh, Hollywood in the same piece. It's almost as if John has created, again, the bridge between these two antithetical Viennese composers living in Los Angeles. No, totally, absolutely. That's a, that's a beautiful uh, way to put it. John the conductor I mean how much important was for him when he accepted the gig at the Boston Pops in early 1980s it wasn't necessary for him at that point to accept such a you know a huge institution American institution and and we know that at the first it wasn't easy for him to get the respect from the orchestra and because they saw this guy from Hollywood coming and conducting so how much important was for his own music but also how much important was it to give film music more wide exposure? Well, it was fundamentally important because the part you left out is that the Boston Pops had a television show. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a very big deal because while it's true that the Boston Pops was a highly respected institution that goes back to the founding of the Boston Symphony, and during the 60s, Arthur Fiedler, whose face was always on the cover of those light classical albums, uh, was a kind of a fixture in those days. But, but when John came in, uh, there was Evening at Pops, which was on public broadcasting. So John Williams, you know, got to be in everybody's living room. And, and you know, if, if Jerry Goldsmith had taken the, over the Pops or Elmer Bernstein or who knows, it would have done it. It was a, it was a promotional vehicle for him and his music. And so th there's no question that that changed everything. Also, it required him to really learn how to conduct other people's music. There's nothing quite like a composer who's a conductor because they know how to write better. You know, you, you, you compare the, the way, say, Wagner wrote, and he was a conductor, and, and you look at, say, the way Puccini wrote, and the problem is Puccini was not a conductor. And so if you try to conduct Manolesco of La Boheme, you find that there are certain things he asks for that are practically impossible. As he, as Puccini moves toward Turandot, you find the music becomes more and more uh, practical from the point of view of being a conductor. Mahler is always practical for a conductor because he was writing it as a conductor. So again, 
Debussy was not a conductor. His music mm -hmm. is very hard to translate because it just doesn't, you know, especially when a composer is a pianist. And Puccini wrote at the piano. Debussy wrote at the piano. There are things you can do at the piano that you cannot do with an 85-piece orchestra. So John, by having to conduct other people's music, that made his music more practical and also freed him from any other earlier roots. I mean, it, it brought him a larger palette. It brought him a larger knowledge. And also, he was playing music in an acoustical space, not a recording studio. Mm. And that's also important. these things were really important and yes of course when he started the Boston Symphony players gave him a hard time and they gave him a hard time for years but it says a lot now that those players are gone mm. that the players who now uh, are in orchestras are people who have grown up with his music yes so having John appear um, or John's music play is no longer an artistic compromise what we're still waiting for is the critics to turn around here um, they're harder, they're, they've always been harder, and, uh, and they have to give themselves permission to like this music, because they do, you see, and, and it's hard for them to admit it. It's hard for them to admit they were wrong all these years, and that their, their forefathers were wrong. And that's where we are now. We, we, we're here, we celebrate John every day, we're looking forward to the last of the Star Wars scores, after all, my son was born in 1977. He's 43 years old. Um, his life can be, you know, described around, uh, he's 42 years old. His life can be described as living in the Star Wars lifetime, right? Yes. So, so already this Christmas, they, he and his wife live in Los Angeles. We are talking about flying to Los Angeles for Christmas so that we can all go see the last Star Wars movie together. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing because it's the same for me, actually. I'm 40 years old, so my life has been really punctuated from childhood until now yeah. by John's music. And to to see him still uh, doing his job, you know, and he maintained this strict routine, uh, getting up very early in the morning and writing every day, no matter what. And so he kept that discipline that I think that is something that elevates him from many others of his peers nowadays. Yeah, that's the history of, I mean, that's what Beethoven did every day. It's what Handel did every day. It's, you know, it's what Richard Strauss did every day. And when Strauss felt he couldn't 
you had a block about where he was in an opera, he wrote a, a leader, he wrote a lead, he wrote a song, but he always wrote every day. Handel wrote every day, Bach wrote every day. And that's part of the muscle memory, you know, and, and, and that's what John does. And we're blessed, you know, to live in his time. And, you know, when I was teaching at Yale in 2001, and that was the 300th anniversary of the university year, and I had a class in music at the time of, of uh, fascist time and its impact on contemporary classical music. So on the first day of class, there were 30 students, and I said, all right, who is your favorite living composer? And there was silence in the room. This, this is now 2001. Um, and I said, so if we were having this class 50 years ago, we would have 20 different answers right now. A hundred years ago, you'd have a hundred different answers. You, you'd be talking about Tchaikovsky and Wagner or Sibelius and Prokofiev and Shostakovich and Benjamin Britten, and you would be talking about Puccini or Mascagni or I don't know. I said, but doesn't, isn't that a bit of a problem? And then one undergraduate raised her hand and said, John Williams. Mm. And, this, and I said, ah, ah, good, <laughs> good. And I said, you know, everyone in this class when you're 50 old or 60 years old, you're going to remember this year by what John is writing right now. And I can tell you what John is writing right now. And that is going to be the, the, the point in your clock, in your personal clock of where you were when you were 18 or 19 years old. And that, that is where music, that's where symphonic music is right now. That's the place. so proud of, of that young woman to admit that she that her favorite living composer and by this we meant symphonic you know we weren't talking about rock and roll we weren't talking about country music we were talking about you know classical music when i was first teaching at yale in 1969 1970 a student came to my office and said mr Macherry, can i speak to you and i said of course and he sat next to my desk and he said you know i have something i have to tell you and i went all right. He's, I, I really love the music of Rachmaninoff. So I granted absolution, you know, ego ti absolvo. I told him to say Ave Maria five times and <laughs> no more. But no, I said to him, but he's a wonderful composer. But this kid felt guilty because in those days, Rachmaninoff was not considered a real composer. Yeah. of bad Tchaikovsky. And, and so... Slowly these things change, 
And, and right now, we may be at the cusp of complete change, mm -hmm. where, where within the next 10 years, our conversation will seem strange mm -hmm. if people like, what is he talking, what is Mount Cherry talking about? And <laughs> oh, really, because if, if you tell people what it was like in 1991, or when I first conducted the Gewandhaus Orchestra, and there were many people in the orchestra who did not feel they should be playing music mm -hmm. from Hollywood. But others thought, absolutely, we want to play this music. And the audience um, reacted well, I think. Oh, yeah, because every time I'd come back, we'd do two concerts and they were completely sold out every year. But again, the, it, it changed because then I suddenly stopped going there. There was a change of music director. And obviously, that music director didn't want that music played anymore. Mm. You know, when I made my debut with the New York Philharmonic, half the program was Korn Gold and half the concert was Roja. Each half was a symphonic work, and then the second half of each half was something live to picture, right? And this was the first time in the history of the New York Philharmonic that they'd ever played live to picture in a, in a, um, in a you know, with a talking picture. They'd done yeah. silent. And this was the interesting thing. The, the concerts were sold out, standing ovation, but no review in the New York Times. Not only was I making my debut, but the Korngold Symphonic Serenade, which was written in, what, 1945 or 46, was being played for the first time 50 years after it was written in America. The, the theme and variations and finale by Roja was being played for the first time since when? Well, since Leonard Bernstein made his debut with yeah. the New York Symphonic. So you'd think there would be maybe a reason to review the concert, but there was no review because from the point of view of the New York Times, it didn't exist. It wasn't real music. So this is important for people to understand the kind of attitude that these composers went through. And that did not stop simply in the 1950s or 60s, but it continued well on into the 21st century. Yeah, but I think that we're slowly entering into this era, as you were saying that we can have a symphonic program by a major symphony orchestra in the world that could start with an overture by, let's say, Shostakovich, then we could go into Congo Violin Concerto, and then maybe in the second half we could play selections from Jerry Goldsmith's Chinatown and then something by John Williams. Why not? Well, there's a good reason why not. It has to do with the music directors, because if the music directors are snobs, mm. I remember I ran into Court Mazur, uh, about a month after I conducted the Philharmonic, and he said, oh, yeah, you are the conductor of film music. <laughs> and he said, you know, and I said, well, no, Maestro, I'm music director of the Teatro Reggio in, in, in Torino, and, the, um, you know, this and that, and he kind of looked at me, and it was, you know, and when I conducted uh, symphonic works from the movies with uh, the, the Detroit Symphony, uh, then the music director was Naimi Yervi, and he said, you must come back and conduct some real music mm -hmm. someday. So this is, has to do with uh, our, our leadership, right? So we're happy that Dudamel likes John mm -hmm. and, and plays, conducts his music. We're happy for Simon Rattle uh, for conducting some Corn Gold. And we're grateful that Andre made a few recordings of the violin concerto by Corn Gold. They are uh, unusual in this sense. And I think that... We will see. We'll see if it changes. We'll see if others uh, see this as a compromise or as logical that they're now allowed 
to do it. It's not something Leonard Bernstein ever did. It's not something Herbert von Karajan ever did. Lenny, at the end of his life, I was playing for him, Gone with the Wind, and the Korngold Symphony, and he was totally convinced. But then he died in 1990. Mm. I would love to hear a Leonard Bernstein recording of the Korngold Symphony. It would have been amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. But when I first started doing it, I mean, these, this would be our premieres. I mean, the Boston Symphony, I made my debut conducting that piece. And that was the last time Ernst Korngold heard his father's symphony. He died shortly after. I mean, I brought it to the uh, Orchestra Sinfonica di, uh, del Radio Svizzera uh, in Lugano. Mm. We, we did the, the third movement in Vienna in 97. It was shocking for the audience to hear it because I think it was really you know, pretty clear what that was about. <clears throat> and also in Hanover in Germany and various places. It's just a symphony I've taken around the world with me. And, um, and, and the reaction is great. So, yeah, it changes. It's just very slow. And I think I think with the death of Pierre Boulez, we're in a much better shape. <laughs> but we are because we don't have him telling everybody what to do and what his opinions are. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you, actually. He was a, he was a perfectly charming man the times I met him, but he was lethal in his opinions. And his, his opinions were black and white. And uh, he, he said what he said, and uh, amazingly enough, people listened to him. That, I just don't understand why people listen to him, but they did. And he had a tremendous impact on where we are now. But, but now, if you mention Pierre Boulez's name, people don't know who you're talking about. Mm. And that's also how fast that has fallen off, right, in our conversations. Yes, absolutely.
I don't want to take too much of your time. It's been really a, a splendid conversation. I'd, I'd love to ask you a lot of more things. And that would be fun. And I, and I hope people will read the book that's in Italian because um, it really does tell the story of what it is to be a conductor. And it is, uh, uh, and I get letters from conductors all the time and from people about how much it means to them. And it makes me very happy to read it in Italian because I know my sense of humor is fundamentally Italian. And when, <laughs> and when I see it in Italian, I go, ah, oh, huh. you know, it's like I can hear my grandmother speaking um, because it's very, very, it's a very Italian book for an American, right? Absolutely, yes. It's a book I totally recommend to any music fan. I'm halfway through and I'm really loving it. It's a, it's a beautiful book. It's a, I love the way that you speak about uh, such a very complicated job but it's also something that speaks really about the, um, the importance of sharing and sharing the, the love for music, which for me yeah. is a... And that's the very big part of being a conductor because you are the center of the people who make the music to the people who hear it. And you don't make a sound. It passes through you and out to the audience. And for some reason, you, you lift your hand, it comes down and there's music. And in a way, uh, conducting is either the most absurd job in the world or the most beautiful because you have nothing to show for it, right? There's no thing, <laughs> you know, you get, you get a review maybe or you, you deal in memory. So when your performance is over, people just remember it, having lived in that performance. So it's a very special place you are when you are the maestro, when you are the center of all of that. And that is the idea of writing about this book, because everyone sees a conductor, right? You see us, you wonder why we're up there and what are we doing? Does the orchestra need you? Does the singer need you? And so to discuss this, what I call alternating current, you know, you are both leading and following. You are, uh, you are always giving and taking at the same time. And still it's passing through your body. You know, who is the first person to hear the music? The conductor it hits yes. us heart in our head in our bodies and then it goes back behind us to the audience who then gives us back their feelings because we absolutely feel them when we're performing you know the back of my neck the back of my arms i know what the audience is doing yeah. and a great performance a great performance is when the audience becomes a single entity uh, of belief and trust and that's when everybody is performing, not just the clarinet and the trumpet and the violin, but the audience is also joining in on the performance. So it's co-performed. So that's really what the book is about. So thank you for reading it. Thank you for mentioning it. And I'm glad you like it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally. I totally recommend it to, to every music lover. And to close out our conversation, uh, what you just said reminds me of an interview with John Williams, actually, where he spoke about the gift of music which is the gift of life it's who we are as humans thank you very much for your time john my pleasure maurizio thank you for having me on your show i think the thing is in, in my mind it isn't the music and it's not even the orchestra, and it's not even the audience. It's the connection between the three things, the creator, the interpreter, the listener. That link, nexus, whatever, that connects us all is the issue. And 
that's what's so wonderful about music, that it does connect us and we become, if not friends, we at least know something more about each other. It's a great gift to us. Music is one of the gifts that we've been given from wherever it came from, like language and other things, that's never going to leave us. And it allows us to share something that's like nothing else that we, we can share. You go before an audience and we are all joined. Orchestra, audience, composer, conductor. What a gift. Jamo Cherry for his time and generosity. Visit his website jamocherry.com for his upcoming conducting appearances and news about his writings. From your host Maurizio Caschetto, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Legacy Conversation on The Legacy of John Williams. This podcast is produced by Maurizio Caschetto for thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com.